Welcome back to Daughters of Darkness, a podcast focusing on horror, exploitation, art house and cult cinema. My name is Kat Ellinger and with me is my co-host Sam Deegan and we're back today for the second episode of two in our series on Nightmare USA. If you want to know more about why we've chosen these films and why we've chosen to focus on Stephen Thrower's enormous book and you haven't heard the first episode then please go to our homepage and check it out. Funnily enough, the first film that we've chosen today isn't actually an American film. It's Canadian. It's by the lovely Bob Clark. It's Death Dream 1974. Uh, We felt that it was important to include it because of the Vietnam themes and because of that in the context of American horror cinema, especially of the 70s. Um, So we decided to include it even though it's not an American film. It is actually mentioned in the book several times, though, because it's quite an influential film. Dead of Night, the story of one night in a small town that changed the lives of many and ended the lives of some. As night fell, something evil descended upon the town, something corrupt unspeakable. Behind their drawn curtains they waited as fear walked in the dead of night. It's important to at least mention a film from the 70s that has to do with the Vietnam War and obviously this is It's still North American, even though it's not specifically U.S., but it deals with these themes in maybe a better way than any other genre film does. I mean, it's a reinterpretation of the zombie theme, but it's also just crushing and beautiful and... I don't know. I mean, I if think... you if you haven't seen this film, you should just <laughs> pause right now and go watch it. I think there are so many films that sort of deal with the the feeling of the time. I mean, George Romero and Wes Craven especially were making films that were very violent films and they were responding to the violence from Vietnam. But Death Dream or Dead of Night, which was its, uh, I think its American title, it's known as Death Dream here in the UK, was one of the first films, if I'm... If I, you know, I'm sure it was one of the first films that actually confronted the theme head on, which 1972, it was very close to that time. So it was quite daring for its time. So it is an important film because it didn't sort of shy away. It didn't hide it in, in context. It didn't sort of try and hide the theme. So it definitely belongs here, even though it's not technically USA. Bob Clark did this before he did Black Christmas, which is the film that he's most known for in horror. It was written by Alan Ormsby and co-written by Alan Ormsby and um, Bob Clark. And they did, um, Alan Ormsby also worked on Bob Clark's Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, which was 1972. I think they were both actually made in this year, but um, they were both made in 72, Death Dream and Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. But... Death Dream wasn't actually released until 1974. 
I'm not sure if that was because of the Vietnam theme and it being too close to the time or, you know, other problems, but it didn't come out till a little bit later. Um, as well as the Vietnam themes, it's based on the monkey's paw story. Oh, yeah. Also, in 1972, Amicus brought out Tales from the Crypt, which has got a little, um, one of the little pieces in that anthology is based on the monkey's paw. So 1972 was Year of the Monkey's Paw. It's a good year for W.W. Jacobs. (laughs) It really was. Um, But Death Dream, I mean, the Amicus one's quite cheesy, but Death Dream is anything but cheesy. It's actually a really effective and creepy horror film about a Vietnam soldier called Andy Brooks. So he dies in combat, but as as he's dying, his mother is sort of calling to him and saying, you promised you wouldn't go, you promised you wouldn't leave me. And somehow in that, he's resurrected and doesn't die. You're all right. I can tell. You're alive. I know it. I can feel it. They lied. They lied. So he comes back. Um, his family are told that he, he's died. He get, they get the telegram, but then that night he appears and they think it's all been like this huge misunderstanding. But they soon realise that Andy's not actually right, um, which is, which is, you know, it does play into that whole Vietnam thing of people coming back from war and being changed. Um, no, absolutely. I mean, he just sits for hours staring into the distance. And he's cold and he's nasty. Um, and his poor mother who just, you know, that apparently went to war to get away from her because we get the idea that she was quite a stifling mother. She suffocated him, and then I think there's in one of the sort of later scenes when there's a bit of a row between his mother and father, He, the father sort of says he went to war to get away from you. But that bond can't be broken, so she calls him back, and she she doesn't really want to see it, so it's quite heartbreaking, you know, because he's not right, and he's, he's, he's sadistic. He's become very cruel. He's become very cold. And it, so it becomes a really good metaphor for sort of post-traumatic stress. Which is a it was a theme that went into American cinema as the eighties went on. I mean, there was an explosion of Vietnam-based action films, wasn't there? Um, there was, and I mean, I think we even talked about Combat Shock earlier, which is sort of a, a horrifying interpretation of that. I mean, it did, but at the time, when you think about this, this is what, probably one of the first ones that sort of dealt with it. Um, there's also sort of references to drug use in it, which we'll get to as well, there which is. was a, which was another sort of main theme with the Vietnam, with a lot of vets coming back, sort of addicted to drugs. So he comes back in the night, and it's got sort of tones of pet cemetery in it, where people come back and they've been altered. Um, and I think tones of Martin too. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's also. I think it gives like an yet another. So we talked about this in the first episode about how America sort of reinvented the vampire myth in a way, and I think 
this does. But well, he's not necessarily a, a, a vampire. He's more of a revenant. Like revenants in yes. folklore, they sort of came from Balkan folklore, and they were like vo- they were like vampires, but they were also like ghosts, and they usually came back for a reason. They came back, and in this case, it's because he made a promise to his mother that he would come back, that he wouldn't die. So he sort of comes back to serve that purpose. But revenants feed on blood. Um, they're not necessarily well, like it, vampires, it though, are they? They're not affected by the sun and. They're sort of like a half breed between. They're sort of a, a blood drinking ghost, and 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 well, e- yeah, but it it has that connection to Messiah of Evil too, where they're not quite vampires, they're not quite zombies. Yeah, because he rots as well. If he something doesn't, else. yeah, if he doesn't take the blood, then he he starts to rot. He starts to decompose. But then revenants yeah. are sort of a cross as well. They're a cross between a sort of ghost and a vampire and a zombie or gets a bit monster club <laughs> i was just thinking of monster yeah which club. i mean i guess let's scare jessica to death has that a little bit too i think it resonates though because it's it's just such a terrifying story that confronts the issues head on so when andy comes back and we see that he's been called back and there's like a quite a dreamy sequence and then we see him we don't actually know what's happened, but when we first see him, he gets picked up by a lorry driver. He's hitchhiking home, and then the lorry driver's killed. Um, and so from the outset, the, the, the father starts to realise he's not quite right and might have committed this murder. But he acts as a catalyst to sort of destroy the family from within. So the mother's sort of hysterical. She won't accept there's anything wrong with the son, and the father's having a nervous breakdown. He's sort of really tortured. And I think the performances in it are really, really strong. It's played completely straight, isn't it? Is that Andy? Yes, Daddy. He went out the back door. Mother gave him the keys. Christine! Christine! You let him go! Why not? I'd leave too if my father came home drunk. You know why I'm drunk. You know. Daddy, what's the matter? Well, mind your own goddamn business. Different than a lot of the films that we've talked about in the first episode and will even more so talk about in this second episode, there are really no comedic elements. Like, it's just really, really a grim, depressing film. There's quite a horrific scene in it early on, which would be funny in a lot of other films where we really realise how far Andy has changed when his dad brings all these little kids home to see him because everybody's missed him. They thought he was dead and actually they find out he's not and everybody's like really happy that he's home. So they bring these little kids home to see him and he's sat in the garden. He rocks on this chair constantly um, because he says he doesn't need to eat anymore and he doesn't need to sleep. Um, and he just picks up the family's dog and like throttles it to death in front of these kids. And it's just really horrible. Um, I think Richard Backus, who plays Andy, is brilliant in it. He really puts oh, in this, so, I, he puts in such a so strong performance. Sad. Because it's like, true. I mean, I mean, not that people came it, back it, as no, zombies, but they did. And they came back changed. Um, and I think all the subtext well, I think, in there. I, I think that mental illness theme is something we talked about in terms of Let's Scare Jessica to Death and Messiah of Evil in terms of female characters, but it's such a big theme in these 
particularly early 70s low-budget American horror films, and here you see it through a male character, and it's just devastating. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's the way it's done as well. I mean, in a lot of sort of horror cinema, especially American cinema, throughout the 70s, you had the proto-slasher developing, and we talked about in the last episode, we talked about the Centerfold Girls and we talked about Andrew Prime being the psycho. And that was, I mean, Andy in this is a psycho, but it's played in a way that isn't seen, you know, typically. I mean, he's not a sexually motivated killer. He's not Freudian. He's not, you know, he's just dead inside. And so his motivation uh, is, you know... Survival. It's survival because there's nothing... It's completely different to anything else you'll see. And so I think that's what makes it such an important film because, you know, so many other films like Last House on the Left or Night of the Living Dead, you know, they were addressing conflict and they were addressing violence, but they weren't actually tackling it head on. Whereas this this does, it sort of says, you know, these people come back into their families, but then families are completely destroyed. This is what war does. You know, he comes back, he might come back from the dead, but, you know, a lot of people did come back and they were dead. So I think at the time, you know, this would have resonated with a lot of people. Bob and I, we thought maybe the four of us could go out tonight. I didn't tell Joanne yet. I mean, that you're home. I thought we could surprise her. You don't have to go if you don't want to, Andy. I just keep thinking about the good times we used to have. Four of us. Seems like so long ago. Oh, Andy, go. It'll be like old times. Old times. That was a long time ago. I know Bob Clark's Black Christmas, it, it tends to get focused on more. Um, and I don't know why. I mean, I love Black Christmas, but... This is such a, and you know what, that, it's it's a great film. It's a slasher years before there were slashers, but this film is so impacting. And I think maybe that's why people aren't as enthusiastic about it is because it's really kind of hard to watch. It is hard to watch. It's uncomfortable. It's filmed like a, it's filmed like a conventional film. It's got a decent budget. The acting in it is Yeah, like notch. a family drama. Um. You know, the family, you've got John Marley as Charles Brooks and Lynn Carlin as a mother, and they're absolutely brilliant in it. The father especially is just heartbreaking because he just can't deal with his son. He just keeps saying to him, you know, what's wrong with you? And and this this guy just sits rocking in the chair. He suspects that he might have killed a, a hitchhiker. And so this homecoming that's supposed to be this, like, really sort of happy thing, especially because they thought he was dead, you know, becomes something else. It becomes something evil. And th their own son becomes like an evil sort of presence in the house. Um, there are a lot of sort of iconic lines in it as well. There's a, a scene when Andy attacks the doctor because the doctor realises he hasn't got a pulse. And oh, he says, yes. I died for you, Doc. Why shouldn't you return the favour? And, and so it's like he's angry. He's angry that he died. 
And it's almost like he wants to take that out on the family and on, you know, he's, there's no joy in him. You know, he's not happy to be back. Um, so I think maybe... No, I think there's a lot of anger in this film in general. And I, I think that's what makes it... Like, you know, we talked about in the last episode how Grave of the Vampire and Center, Centerfold Girls are sort of mean-spirited and unpleasant, but this isn't mean-spirited at all. It's just unpleasant because it's so depressing and angry. But that doesn't mean that it's not a really good film. I, I remember saying no, it to is. you, actually, when I was watching it, you know, for the podcast, that I can't believe that every time I watch it, how creepy it is how genuinely scary it is it's just got a, an overall vibe that's just it's uncomfortable and claustrophobic and extremely effective um you well know. i think because it's it's sort of presented in a lot of ways it doesn't come at you like a horror film it comes at you like a family drama about someone who returns from a traumatic experience and is clearly traumatized and so I think a lot of the horror elements wind up being a surprise yeah, in a way that they, works yeah, really well. The way it's set up, it's not it's not obvious. Um, you know, like you said, he comes into the house and it it just seems like a normal family drama, but it's not. It, then it becomes like a violent horror. It has got those connections to Martin. Um, the way he takes blood oh, is into a syringe, and obviously that's a metaphor for drug abuse. But you know, it's 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 not very nice to watch, and it's very the yeah. killings in it, and are, he becomes addicted to the blood. Yeah, and you know, well, he has to because he sort of starts to rot, and people will start to notice. So he he, he steals syringes um, from the doctor, and then that's how he takes his victims. But it's it's just. His girlfriend in it as well, I think Kathy, her name is, is really, really sweet. And she, there's there's a horrible scene in that when they go out to the drive-in. She's so pleased because she thought he was dead. And then she finds out that he's not the Andy that she used to know. And she's trying to sort of remind him of the life they had and he's just not responding. He comes out as well to the date dressed like he's from some sort of slick Italian sci-fi film. In he this does. really strange suit with black shades on. I mean, it really is such an offbeat film. That it's such it a is. shame that uh, we always seem to be saying this. It's such a shame that people don't watch this. But that's perhaps why Nightmare USA and, and books like that are important because they champion these sort of films. Everybody loves Black Christmas and every Christmas, guaranteed, I mean, I love it, but guaranteed it will be shown on TV here. But I don't think I've ever seen Death Dream on TV mentioned or anybody actually mention it ever. Well, Andy, if you need someone to talk to, I'm more than willing to help. I want you to know, Doc, that I'm in perfect health. There's not a living soul in better health than I am. I don't have to worry about getting sick or old. Tired or hungry or anything. Or maybe one thing. What do you mean, Andy? 
Feel my pulse, Doc. Randy, I feel it. I know, and I think, like I said, it's because it's so difficult. I mean, have I have I told you about my weird, unpleasant double feature that I've recommended to people? No. Earlier, you mentioned that John Marley and Lynn Carlin are the parents. Yeah. They are. They also play a married couple in John Cassavetes' Faces, which is one of the most devastating films I've ever seen. And I've only made it through this once, but watching a double feature of Faces and Death Dream, like you'll be miserable for at least a week because it's just about this sort of horrible disintegration that comes from something being inherently wrong in the family structure. And obviously Faces is not a horror film. It, it is a, a family drama or maybe a romantic drama, but they have so many weirdly overlapping themes. And I think it's interesting how that plays into Death Dream. And I think, and I'm sure this doesn't apply to everyone, but I think a lot of people approach horror as sort of fun and not serious and there are things you can laugh at and Death Dream doesn't have anything like that. It it's deadly serious. I mean But I do think that Andy, is that is why the genre is there as well. I mean you've got that driving fun popcorn element, but also horror should be there yeah. to confront things. It should be there to make you feel Absolutely. uncomfortable. And I think this this does it. It hits the nail on the head. It's just it's just superb. Um, obviously, you know, if you want a really happy weekend, then check out Sam's check out Sam's recommendation for a double bill. And you yeah, know, if you're having Meryl Strife, <laughs> you know, guarantee for a depressing <laughs> weekend. Um, right before we move on to our next film, I feel like we should mention that Tom Savini who apparently served in the Vietnam War as a photographer, made his effects debut here. And I feel like he's given some interviews about this, but it's sort of interesting that Clark happened to find him and he had someone who actually was on hand to experience things involved in the film. Yeah, because it is spot on. Oh, talking of which, the ending... Because the original ending oh. was cut. Um, yes. I don't really want to give away the end, but there's just this heartbreaking line that the mother gives about Andy coming home and some boys never come home, um, which was originally cut, I think, because it just it just was too potent at the time. Um, but it's since been restored, I think, when the film came to Blu-ray or DVD even, so... The alternate scene is in there. I mean, it's only a line, but it's it's interesting that they felt that they needed to cut it. It just goes to show how the emotions were running so highly at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty early on. I think this is one of the first films that really deals with the full impact of the war. Which is, and it's incredible. So depressing or not, everybody should get a face full of it, I think. <laughs> yeah. So talking, you might not want to actually watch my double feature though. It's really brutal. Maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) So moving on to our second film, which is just as grim but slightly more exploitation and goes for a a, a more of a fun theme, is um, Frederick R. Friedel's Kidnap Coed, which is a film that I was cursing you for picking 
because <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry. She doesn't know it. But this pretty co-ed daughter of a millionaire has a date with a kidnapper. Shut up and drive. Kidnapped co-ed. Morley, I'll let you know how much and where to drop the money. No cops. No cops or she's dead. He is kidnapping me! My father is Franklin Morley. Doesn't that mean anything to you? My father could pay you anything to get me back. Why didn't you say so? Kidnapping will be the least of her troubles. Before Sandra's wild series of adventures is over, she'll betray her father for three million in ransom. Consider it a wedding present. Make love to me. And fall in love with her captor. Bizarre and brutal tales ever told. Kidnapped Coed. Um, <laughs> Frederick Alfredor, he made Axe, which was a form of video nasty. And there are some yes. there are some sort of comparisons between the two. He didn't make many many films. He's a very, very low budget filmmaker. Um and he made Axe, which was about a group of gangsters who take a young girl and her grandfather, a um, catatonic grandfather, hostage in a rural house. Um, yeah, I they're definitely Axe. overlapping themes. They're definitely overlapping themes. Now, Kidnap Coed or Date with a Kidnapper, um, which is 1976, um, involves um, not a gangster this time, but a guy who... In order to make some money, he kidnaps. Um, is he a politician? He's quite a highbrow guy. He's very rich. He lives in a big mansion. We don't actually see the father, but he kidnaps a young girl called Sandra as she's leaving her dorm. And then he holds the father to ransom. But it, then it becomes a sort of strange love story. Love in a story. Way. Yeah, it's just very strange. Um as the they're waiting for the money from the father it's quite grim and it's very very slow and very very ponderous i think axes it is but axe is a very strange film it's got a peculiar vibe and so i i like axe but i don't think it works as well here um whereas i feel the opposite way so you really liked it i really do like it and I remembered liking it, but then when I revisited it, I wound up liking it even more. And I think it's because he he does a lot of things you don't expect. I mean, there are all these sort of weird, absurdist comic elements and these kind of strange pastoral scenes, which... You know, we, we talked about that in terms of Let's Scare Jessica to Death and Messiah of Evil, where there are just all these depictions of the American countryside as this sort of beautiful but threatening place. 
that I get why in Nightmare USA, Stephen Thrower makes it seem like more of an art film than maybe it is, but it's just so strange. I mean, he does have a real thing about rural sort of scenes and um, these little dilapidated farmhouses and barns and stuff, and that comes up in Axe. Um, Axe takes it even further though because there's loads of weird symbolism in Axe. There's like a scene in Axe with eggs and stuff and you just think he's making some sort of art (laughs) statement here but it just doesn't really fit in um, an exploitation film. He's actually in Axe as well but he's not in this. Well, no. he's actually in this as a voiceover. So oh, he's does he the do father. the voiceover? Oh, he does the voiceover as the father because you don't see over, the father over the do telephone. You? Yes. No, yeah. you don't see him, but you hear him talk on the phone. And he obviously liked gangsters as well because that's a, a theme in both, or sort of criminal types. Um, you know. Um, yeah, watching watching this, I kind of I kind of feel like this is something that influenced Tarantino in terms of the like sympathetic criminal because he really like the character Eddie who kidnaps Sandra. He's also in the sense he plays steel in act. So he's in both, isn't he? Yes, he, he definitely is. But you get the sense that he's become a criminal and, and this sort of unfolds throughout, throughout the film. You get the sense that he's, become a criminal because his life has been so miserable. I mean, he talks about how his father is an alcoholic and beat him. And there's this really sad scene where he talks about how his father taught him how to swim. And basically he learned to swim because his father said, either you learn to swim or I'll drown you. Which was And his mother is, yes. And his mother is in this nursing home and it seems like she doesn't know who he is when he calls her. It's just... It's really sad. Well, you do wonder whether he needs the money to keep her in this nursing home as well, because he's not a typical criminal, is he? He's not like he's, he's not, not like his his character in Axe, where they're um, no, not at all hiding out from a robbery. He seems quite. He's not very good at um at being a kidnapper. Really, he doesn't really think it through. There's a strange scene in it where they hide out in a hotel, and this gang of guys burst in and and rape his hostage which is strange which makes well, and it it's especially yeah it's especially strange because she she leaves a note and she assumes that they're police officers who got her note and the film takes and this is within the first 20 minutes like the film takes sort of an abrupt twist where you realize like i i, I think the one guy says to her yes and it was very well written but like, it takes a strange twist really early on. I mean, you're not sure if they're gangsters or what they are. They're just really dodgy types. They tie him up. Yeah, no, you never learn. And then they tie her up and, and, and rape her in quite a nasty rape scene he's forced to watch. Look, I'm Sandra Morley. Franklin Morley's my father. <laughs> he is kidnapping me. My father is Franklin Morley. Doesn't that mean anything to you? Something. My my father can pay you anything to get me back. Well, why didn't you say so? Try it, Smuck. 
And so he, and he then freaks beca- out so yeah, much. He then yeah. becomes the good guy, which is interesting because he frees himself and frees her. So then they get this strange um, relationship developing. I just, I don't know, the, the sort of, the chopping and toing and throwing with exploitation and then trying to put these deep themes into it. I didn't think it quite worked. The pacing was a bit off. Um, it is, but it, it's a very, very strange film. And I feel like the reason, the reason that I maybe liked it, and this is a huge jump, so you're going to have to bear with me, but... <laughs> Marketa Lazarova is one of my favorite films, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately. And obviously, it has absolutely nothing to do with kidnapped co-ed, but it is about a girl who is kidnapped, and she winds up falling in love with her rapist. And so I, I think I've just sort of had more of a mental space for these kinds of weird, definitely not politically correct love stories yeah which is definitely what this is I just it's, don't... it's almost like he put all these different things into a blender and they don't quite work no. but i know where he's going with it and it's it winds up being really sweet and optimistic like it ends with with them skipping off this... into the sunshine well and it ends with like a dance scene like they go to this and we talked about this more in the in the first episode but a lot of these sort of strange, low-budget American genre films have this theme of small towns being alien, hostile places where the inhabitants are really unfriendly and possibly violent and out to get wow, you. Wow, the old kidnapped man. Co-ed, Grizzly yes, Adams. Kidnapped Co-ed, <laughs> yes, he does look like Gri- Grizzly Adams, but I feel like Kidnapped Co-ed has that all along. I mean, even when they go in the beginning to check into the hotel the the desk manager it's his last day and he doesn't care and he doesn't want to check them in and then somehow the gangsters show up and then they come across this farmer who seems like he's helping them but there's this really horrible creepy scene where they have sex for the first and time and the farmer on spies with on a knife them in his hand. and then yes and comes in the bedroom and they don't even notice <laughs> and he has this giant knife in his hand this is what i mean and then, and then for he just yeah. Explodes. Then he tries to kill Eddie with a pitchfork. What are you? What are you, some kind of nut, old man? Stay away from me! God damn it! Stay away from me! You nut! What are you crazy? Um, the and other thing about it. it is he's got this little girl, this sort of traumatised mute girl who, when they turn up to stay there, he seems quite friendly to start with. Um, and they say, can you put us up for the night? And there's a little mute girl who's just sat on the path, sort of really sort of, I don't know, she's just totally shut off. And they say, oh, yeah, what's wrong with catatonic. her? And they say, oh, she saw her mother die. So... Um, then after staying at the farmhouse and having dinner with this guy and then he spies on them having sex, they then are greeted by him outside with a pitchfork trying to kill Eddie. So Eddie has to shoot him in front of this traumatised kid who's just sat there. And it is these. it has got these really like odd little moments that 
I mean, some bits of it are good. That bit's really good. But you just think, why? What What the hell? You know, what started that off? Because he says he used to be the sheriff, the old man as well. And you think that's not really he the does. sort of thing. You think he might be rescuing um, the girl, but it doesn't turn out to be that. And then you've also got these, like you said, weird little moments of comedy. Like they're, at one point they're hiding out in a field and all these old ladies appear from nowhere set to this like jovial so flute music and they're bird watching and you just think what the hell was that about you know it's <laughs> i do wonder well, what it's... went on with frederick arfidor's head because axe isn't a normal film either um you do wonder what he was doing or what he was attempting to do you know with it, these it's films. very strange and it's definitely not for everyone and i i certainly get why people maybe wouldn't like it or would find it. I, I actually, I think out of all the films that we're discussing in these two episodes, it's one of the least accessible. Yeah. I mean, I really, but it's also really it. beautiful. See, I didn't think I thought it was boring. <laughs> Sorry. No, it had moments. Well, well I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to go out on my own limb here as well. The ending sort of nearly ending. There's a holdup in a, in a, in a bar that they're in. And there's a comment about, what's being found in the suitcase and i just found that as a link to pulp fiction not a direct link no that's me too did you that wasn't just me being weird then i did quentin no, tarantino I feel like... definitely seen this film no between eddie's character and eddie's character reminded me of certain characters in reservoir dogs and the suitcase definitely reminded me of pulp fiction yeah. and it's like dirty mary crazy larry i feel like He's seen those too many times. Definitely. I'm glad that wasn't just me that made that connection. No, 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 no. I, I don't know why it seems so obvious to me all of a sudden, but it was just like, I I feel like this is the kind of film he would have wanted to make, but couldn't. I think, um, I mean, they definitely are worth watching on a double bill, Axe and Kidnap Coed. I think they they do work together. Well, and there's that great severance. I mean, so far we haven't really talked a lot about releases and how you can see these films, but I think this came out, what, last year? On a double bill, Two. which should be... Yes, it came out, Axe and Kidnap Coed came out together with lots of special features from Stephen Thrower, uh, like featurettes, documentaries, interviews, a making of documentary, audio commentaries, which it's sort of... I think it's wonderful, but it shocks me that somebody put that much love and effort into putting these together. I think Thrower really but champions these films, so doesn't he? I mean, yes, he does. Especially in the book, he he really sees all the sort of art elements in there, probably more than. I mean, I could see he was attempting that. I just didn't think it necessarily worked so well. I think there's some interesting threads in there and it could have been perhaps with a bigger budget maybe or a bit more experience, it could have been a lot more interesting to me. And I also felt as well, Leslie Rivers, who plays Sandra, so she's the, the, the kidnapped co-ed. She's not as good as the girl who plays Lisa in Axe because that really is a spellbinding performance because that's like very low budget and yeah. it's got similar things in, but she's a really, really odd character. Whereas um, she's very strange. The character of Sandra, she's not. She doesn't even really say much, does she? Um, she's got hardly no, any and dialogue. She sometimes, well, it's weird because 
she sometimes seems like she's supposed to be 13 or 14. Well, they put these and little glasses times, on her to start with, and she yeah. looks like a really young schoolgirl, but then as it goes on... But she's not. After she gets raped and she loses the glasses, you can see she's actually older, but they've de- they've deliberately sort of tried to make her really sweet and innocent. Um, so she's a strange character in a way. I just don't think it was as entertaining or necessarily as engaging as Axe was. I mean, Axe is very uneven as well. There's really strange things that happen in that for no reason, but, you know... Yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe I just have sort of a weird soft spot for these like bizarro, kind of unpleasant cult romances. It's because you're romantic, admit it. (laughs) No, I think it's because my brain's gone soft. (laughs) I know it would loathe you. To, to admit no that. after <laughs> after all these Zhuavsky films there's, <laughs> my brain is just dead <laughs> so moving on from the grim I think it's been quite downbeat to start with this episode we started it off has. with two heavy hitters I don't think we thought that through we should have like when we divided up the 10 films we should have it's been quite depressing um we need to move on but to this, this film one. that is probably one of the most amazing low budget films ever made and I will stand but it's also by a that. love story it is also a love story, but I enjoy this one. So you haven't eaten for ten years. Oh, don't complain to me. I didn't glut myself into this corner. If you weren't so greedy, you wouldn't have eaten everybody who came into the house. Now the estate bears such an order of misfortune for all the unexplained disappearances. No one wants to come here. That's it. Take it out on the house as if it was responsible for your idiocy. But instead of petty vandalism, why don't you put your dim mind towards concentrating your incredible power to destroy the entire structure? Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. Deathbed, the bed that eats. <laughs> 1977 film, a horror film, which has got a lot of comedy in it as well. It is just the most amazing thing. I had this like it years is. ago on some really, really crummy, I think it must have been a bootleg or something. And it was another one of those films that I would preach to people that they had to see. And they'd just be like, ugh. You know, deathbed, the bed that eats. It just all sounds so... Well, they think you're kidding. It's just so amazing. like. And then it actually got released on Blu-ray, I think, thanks to Stephen Thrower, who, yes, who does totally a lot of extras on that. Another one that's got loads and loads of care and love. I can't remember what label it's on. But I actually imported it at great expense because I was just so excited that somebody would, like, dare oh, to do Oh, it's cult epic. It was cult epics, yeah. It was quite pricey. I had to get it. I was just like, I can't believe this has been released on Blu-ray. It's just so amazing. But it's such it's such a loving release. I mean, they restored the print. It's remastered. There's a commentary track from George Barry and Stephen Thrower. And Stephen Thrower is basically responsible for tracking down George Barry, who directed, wrote, and produced the film. And he apparently said that he forgot he made it, which... <laughs> 
How do you forget Deathbed? George Barry, he, like, when Stephen Thrower talks about him in the book, um, and he talks about tracking him down, and I think it was all through a forum and something, because for years and years, he was like, it was one of those films, nobody knew the how made it. It was just this really strange film that's like a hybrid between a horror, a comedy, and an art house film that's made on a H.G. Lewis budget. It's just so strange, oh, so and nobody good. knew like where it had come from or who the hell George Barry was. So Stephen Thrower tells this story, and then years later, like in 2001 or whatever, he finally finds him and interviews him. And George Barry was a legend. He just tried to make this film. It took him five years. He funded it. Ten grand of it came out of his own pocket. He tried to make like films prior to this, and I think he was like a philosophy student. So he, yes, I think so. He talks in the book about his other like ideas for films, which were quite wacky. I think he had one about some garbage, some living garbage or something. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the chapter, the chapter on George Barry is one of the best in the book. It's absolutely brilliant, and no one talks about George Barry. And it's like this guy needs to be given money so he can make more films. Um, Deathbed, as the title suggests, is about a bed that eats people, but it's not any bed. It's like a strange, <laughs> ornate, gothic bed that was created by a demon. It was conjured up as a sort of seduction tool for this demon to lure this woman. Uh, but so he who could, he loved, who he loved. Well, he wanted to get his end away as well on the bed. So he makes this huge gothic ornate four-poster bed in the middle of the countryside to lure this woman like you do but during sex she dies and because he was so sad he like cries tears of blood onto the bed and that made the bed into a vampire um (laughs) so on top of this all all brief fucking beard (laughs) sleep Which, that's why I just laughed, because, like, out of all the fucking insane things that you could have just said, or that someone could have just written into the script, having Aubrey Beardsley in the film, like, what? He was basically an artist, um... Who created? Yeah, these, I have an like, Aubrey Beardsley tattoo on my arm. He's just such a. He was such a beautiful artist. He died really young of TB, and he did these sort of erotic, perverse. They were sort of a cross between Japanese sort of traditional Japanese and and um, Art Nouveau prints. Um, look them up online if you're listening to this. So Aubrey Beardsley, who in real life died of TB, in George Barry's world has actually been trapped in a painting and forced to live there um, by this bed and watch the bed sort of lure people and eat them. (laughs) It's just like, what the hell? (laughs) I've been in prison behind my painting in this limbo for 60 years now since my death. I think half that time I've spent in listening to that monster snore. Someone's coming. My God, it's waking up. So that's about it. That's the premise. Um, it, and I love that it serves it up. So we were talking about centerfold girls in the last episode. And I was saying how I loved that the fact that that's sort of served up in different little vignettes 
where he tracks these different victims. And this is served up in four courses, like a meal. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, and just desserts, which is amazing. Which is wonderful. Um, with these people that um they get lured to this mansion and for some reason the bed is living in a little outhouse um <laughs> uh, the first lot are these three women that get called there um but one of the women reminds the bed of his lover of the demon's lover um so he doesn't want to eat her <laughs> but he eats he the other two. they're all like i'm just gonna fall asleep on this bed and then they get sucked into the bed and then the way it eats them is this yellow foam like comes out yeah there's bed cam <laughs> there's a bed cam they go into it it's like it's like amniotic fluid with all like blood and it gets like really trippy it's just so hard to to explain the brilliance of this film um <laughs> there's quite a lot of yeah gore you, in it. you almost can't you can't put it's just such a strange film I seem to be saying that with everything. Every film we pick is really strange. But especially like this one. <laughs> I mean, Godmonster of Indian Flats is strange, but this is like a totally different level. Well, the comedy in it is amazing. Like there's stuff like a vicar getting killed. Like the vicar sits on the bed and gets like sucked. And the Pepto-Bismol? <laughs> yeah, cause the, and the bed burps <laughs> and it snores. And it sounds as silly as it is, because but it just works. It just all seems to work. You just think the audacity of George Barry to make this wonderful masterpiece. Um, I love it though because it's so surreal. It's it's it is so surreal art, and so you know. There's nothing way. like it. No, nothing. And never, never has been like ever since. What can you compare it to? Like all the way through this series, we've been talking about. I suppose it has got gothic elements in that it's got the demon element and the very ornate it does. And, and Aubrey Beard's And it has art. the kind of it has the kind of like voiceover elements that appear in a lot of these uh low budget American films. I mean, instead of an actual protagonist who comes in and has a voiceover, it's Aubrey Beardsley <laughs> who's behind the painting and can telepathically communicate with the bed. <laughs> Yeah, apart from I think every 10 years the bed goes to sleep and he can actually talk from outside the painting yes. to people in the room. Then he can talk to people. Well, and there is a scene where the bed goes to sleep and he can tell the girl what's going on. <laughs> the oh, the, the my favorite bit, one of my favorite bits in it is um the 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 first girl that doesn't get killed. So she gets trapped because this bed, it can keep people in the room. Its sheets can come off and it can... One woman gets sort of half killed, half eaten. She tries to yes. crawl out and the bed can, like, its four poster curtains come off and wrap around and drag her back in. So the, the so the one girl sort of left in the room and her brother, who's gone to look for her because she's run away from home to laughing, <laughs> turns up to find her. And gets trapped in this room and he gets his hands eaten. <laughs> yes. And he just ends up with these two, you know, those like skeleton models that you get. Two of those just stuck on his hands. <laughs> That's what it looks like. And then like. the fingers start dropping off one by one. And he's just like, oh dear, the fingers are dropping off. He's <laughs> not even bothered. And he was going, oh. You know, the cartilage is starting to rot. And you just think, what cartilage? You've got, like, plastic skeleton hands. <laughs> oh, yeah, God. It's... 
It is insane. He really should have made more films. He should have. Who stopped him? It's like, you know, poor George Barry. I mean, I think the after it took him like five years to make it. And, um, you know, after that, I think it was just too much of a trauma for him. Um, The thing that I also wanted to mention is in Stephen Thrower's book, in in the lengthy interview in there, the George George Barry interview, which is great, is he talks about the house that you don't see much of the mansion because it all takes place in obviously a very cheap studio space. Um, yes, but there is an, an um, as when the first victims arrive, there's a sort of exterior shots of a mansion, and that was actually rented from some rock band um, at the time. Um, and they'd had bikers parties there and stuff, apparently. I think the guy who plays... Which is probably why he got it so cheaply. Yeah, I think they're only there. Like It only gets a few shots. It's really ornate, though. And it's got all this, like, mist and everything. Which is... It's got these, like, really cool moments in it, Deathbed. It's got really silly moments, like the Pepto-Bismol floating around. Oh, God. <laughs> and the yeah, menching noises. Yeah, I don't think noises. we can even do justice. We we can't really do justice to those, like, I just mentioned the bed cam where things sink into the bed, but it's amazing. It was filmed at Garwood Mansion, which is outside of Detroit, which is the last place you'd expect to find gothic. Uh, yeah, the absolute last place. <laughs> I think the guy who played Beardsley, though, he he knew the rock band. He was a music journalist, but he doesn't actually voice him. They get someone else to voice him. Um, They get a guy. Which I would assume is for financial reasons. Like, they just couldn't get him to come back. No, I don't. No, he was a friend of George Barry's, I think, because the guy who does Beardsley's voice, um, he sounds English. Because obviously Aubrey brings yes, he English, does. so he does like a very good sort of English accent. So I don't know what the guy, the original guy, spoke like. Um, and George Barry actually does a cameo because he's the demon's bleeding eyes. The demon sleeps. He's dreaming. You've lost all your strength. I can talk beyond my painting. I think that I was for financial. Re- of- <laughs> that was for financial reasons. Of course. But I think apparently he said a bunch of different people did the bed's voice. Yeah, they had all different <laughs> like people it's, doing it's not one person. Yeah. So we're having far too much fun now. I think we need to um bring it down again. <laughs> I don't know. I still have a lot of fun with it. like an inappropriate amount of fun with this <laughs> next film that we have to talk about. Don't go is... in the house, which was 1980. Yes. Which everything was always don't go in the 70s and the 80s, wasn't it? In this house, 25 years ago, a child was given life. Donald, come here. He was raised in isolation. You're a bad boy. Instructed in fear. You're evil and you must be punished. Imprisoned by a tormented mind. Your father let you do things like that, but he's gone now. And baptized in flames. Now he has come of age. His suffering has ended and ours is about to begin. You hear that, old lady? I'll punish you again! If you would be spared from the fury of his vengeance, (laughs) whatever you do, don't go in the house. Stairway by stairway, he draws you closer to madness. Oh, God! And 
soon, he'll share the terrifying secret behind this door in the Room of Steel. Don't make me do anything bad, Mother. Don't go in the house, because the people who live there aren't people anymore. Don't go in the house. But if you do, don't say we didn't warn you. I was saying... Yeah, and I, I'm not sure, is this 1979 or 1980? No, it's 1979. I'm totally wrong there. It is. It's 1979. I don't think it was released till 1980, though. Yes, which I have in my notes, which is why I was... I think it's one of those weird sort of... It took a little while to come out, and I think there was some opposition because it was dubbed a video nasty. Yeah, it was It was a, It was was banned here. Um, As it should For obvious reasons when we get talking about the plot. Yes. Um, the director, Joseph Ellison, he only made two films. He made this in a 1986 film called Joey, which I haven't seen, but I read about it, and it sounded like Me a either. musical drama. So um, yeah. <laughs> really odd. Um especially with the video nasty connotation, but you wonder how that might have affected his career as well. Um, there are loads of these don't go film. Don't go in the woods. Don't go in the house. Don't go in the but basement. But this is the this best. This is definitely the best. I guess it fits into a slasher, but it's not technically a slasher. It's more like maniac yeah, than a slasher. Yeah, I was going to bring in the maniac reference, um, but there's no slashing. Um no, only burning. <laughs> which was the working title, which is really strange because obviously 1981 there was The Burning, which was a slasher. But this is even better than that, and I love The Burning. <laughs> so the story goes that that Donnie Cola is a bit of he he loves the fire. He he's a blue he collar worker. Um, the film starts out he sees one of his colleagues um, who's stoking a, a boiler he bursts into flames and we get the sense that Donnie isn't all there. (laughs) He goes home and he lives with his mother. So we've got the psycho references there. He's a bit of a Norman Bates. Um, Also, it also follows the peeping Tom line in that you've got a very sympathetic killer. Um, He gets home and his mother, his domineering mother is dead in a, in a chair. And this is the best thing about it because his mother, who sort of, we find out that she was abusive and we find out that his obsession with fire comes from some of that child abuse, which is one of the themes that probably made it a video nasty. They don't like that. The other was setting fire to women. They don't like sort of violence towards women. So it's not surprised it got banned. But, um, in his reaction is he doesn't sort of like tell anybody. He turns on his music really loud and starts jumping on the furniture and smoking in the house, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> it's amazing because that's what I would do if I was forced to live with my mother and she died. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so she's just in this um, chair, is the corpse, which he keeps her there, very Norman Bates, and um, he starts to lure women back to the house. Uh, he and then he hangs them up on metal chains and he burns them to death quite horrifically Uh, 
we're laughing away here. It's, it's really, it is really nasty. It's, it's, it's it definitely is. links to maniac. Definitely. No, and New York. Ripper yeah, too, and I was going to say, is much, which is a couple of years later, but I mean. It's of of all the slashes, I know technically no slash, but it's I'd say it was a slasher. It's one of the nastiest, definitely, alongside New York Ripper. Um It is, and I really I feel like I need to apologize for my inappropriate level of enthusiasm <laughs> for this film, but I love it so I mean, I'm also probably New York Ripper's greatest living champion. Like it's one of my probably top ten favorite films, and Don't Go in the House is at least in my top 30. I love it so much. And it just, but it's so unpleasant. It is. It's um, with Maniac. And I wonder if, because Maniac was a little bit later, whether there was any influence. Yeah, there. I, what, two years later? Yeah, two years later. I mean, you've got Donnie and then Frank Zito's paid by the wonderful Joe Spinell. They've definitely got a lot of similarities. Um, Donnie hears his uh, voices of his victims. There's a very sort of similar ending point as well and it, there's definitely sort of you can draw connections between the two they're both as brilliant um maniac t- gets all the fanfare though doesn't it everybody loves maniac it does and i don't understand and, why i mean yeah granted the two leads like dan grimaldi who plays donnie he's not quite on the same level but the film is amazing it's it's so insane. I mean, the way that... So, as you said earlier, Ellison didn't direct many films, but the way he weaves the fire theme throughout the entire film, it, it's pretty masterful. I, like, I don't... You know, I can't really talk about this film very objectively because I love it so much, which, like, I'm sure if I was born male, I probably would be a serial killer, but, you know, luckily I'm just talking about... <laughs> don't go in the house on a podcast <laughs> but it's it's so good but would you set fire to someone's hair in a disco absolutely <laughs> i would if i was forced to be in a disco and listening to disco music and he's also on sort of a weird date yeah and the woman pisses him off so he sets fire to her hair <laughs> and then he gets into a fight I mean, because like people are like who is that he does bug? get into a fight <laughs> he's like just set fire to that woman's hair it, i i like donnie though you've got to feel sorry for him you know he's he's likable and i think he sort of links back to one of the things we've been talking about over the last two episodes where it's a portrait of mental illness and it's a protagonist who's dealing with a lot of past trauma and it makes you feel really, really, and the same way with Maniac where you're made to feel really bad for him, even though he commits horrible well, acts. Way I mean, confronts child abuse. It's quite um, graphic. Which is, is maybe why I love it. I mean, so I feel like at this point, a lot of people have seen either Manhunter or Red Dragon and both of those deal with you know, a a matriarch who badly abuses a male child, but here you see scenes of his mother holding his arm over an open flame on the stove to burn the evil out of him when he's obviously innocent and hasn't done anything wrong. So it's not surprising then that he would, and also, I don't know what the logistics of this are, but 
to grow up and make your basement into an actual crematorium, I feel like is next to impossible. I know. But he's he got does like it. everything's lined with metal. All you see is him buying a welding suit, and the next thing he's got his own personal sort of incinerator. Uh, he does. <laughs> death. Can you imagine how hot it would be the down first there? Death is horrific because he chains up the woman and then he pours petrol on her, and she's still alive. And then he really takes his time. And then as she's burning, she's screaming. And I was and it's racking horrible. my brains and thinking of all the slashes, in fact, then beyond slashes. And apart from Carrie, which has obviously got fire scenes. And there is like... But they're not even that no, horrible. There's a there's a scene in the burning at the end where Cropsy gets a frame for her out. But I can't think that anybody else has done this. So many slashers, and they all had the same things. It was all knives and axes. No, you know, I think this is really original. Um, well, and I think that's why this and New York Ripper are so different, is because they're so much more graphic. And definitely New York Ripper is graphic in a different way, and in a way that we should talk about in maybe a future episode, but it's so visceral and unpleasant. Uh, like... I feel like if you're using a knife or an axe, it can be this sort of quick scene where something is inserted into someone's body and removed. But with fire, it's just so much well, more Well, it's like grim. he's punishing them as well because he's like, he, you get like, he doesn't get on with his colleagues. He's only got his one friend, I think Bobby is the friend. There's like a weird sort of homoerotic sort of, I don't know. He's got a weird bond with his friend. He's like the only person he relates he to. He does. Um, whereas women, he doesn't relate to them at all. And so he sort of takes them out and he's very, they, he's very unassuming and he's nice and so they don't see him as a threat. Um, but then... Well, he also doesn't stalk them, and I feel like that's what makes this different. Like, Centerfold Girls, in the last episode, we talk about how he stalks these women that he sees in a men's magazine, whereas in this movie, he doesn't stalk anyone, they just kind of wander into well, his path, and they're sort of attracted in a way, to him. He's a bit of a Ted Bundy. Because he'll yeah, sort of go, oh, can fine. I give you a lift? Oh, I just got to drop something off to my mother and they don't really sort of suspect him or, you know, or he lures them into his house and, you know, he's like quite a sweet guy who just happens to incinerate women. Oh. Excuse my appearance, but uh, I just got jumped. Really? Wh what? He was jumped? Oh, you were? What happened? A couple of guys came out of no place. They jumped me in a parking lot. Three of them. Really? Yeah, three guys with knives. Oh, wow. Just now? Yeah. Well, where was this? Back in town. Well, what they do, take your money? They wanted to. But I showed them. They didn't know who they were messing with. They thought they had themselves a real pushover. Well, what'd you do? I beat the hell out of all three of them. <laughs> I, I was in the Marines. Green Beret. <laughs> well, I thought the Green Beret was the army. Well, this was just like the Green Beret. It was a special division. Um, with the Met go. He's very. To unassuming. go back to the maniac reference, he then keeps their corpses and he hears them talking to him, which is very maniac. Um, it is very maniac, and I think it is very in keeping with what we've been talking about over these last two episodes, where people are 
there are either voiceovers or people hearing voices and it's... and he hears his mother's voice as well very norman bates yes so he gets them and he also gets this sort of voice doesn't he who's like donny you are free you know this little voice that sort of tells him to get up to mischief so he get he hears all sorts of voices it's not just one voice and it's really great and like like with jessica with the whispering these like strange Voices that he hears all the time, which brings in another element, which I think is brilliant. Um, there's this amazing scene in it when he hears the corpses chattering. Um, and he's just been in and told his dead mother what he thinks of her. And then he hears these, he overhears the corpses sort of laughing about him. And he goes into the room and he slaps this corpse. Don't make me do anything bad, mother. <laughs> You think I'm crazy for talking to my mother like that? You're all bitches. Selfish and vain. Don't you dare laugh at me. Which is it's a, amazing. one of the best things. Like for a slasher, it's like so... You don't see him do it. You see it from the cameras at the corpse's point of view. So he slaps the camera and then it rocks because it's in a chair and it's just amazing. You just see his face. I think um, Dan Grimaldi does give a really good... I know he's not as good as Joe Spinell, but who is? Well, who is? But he does really give a good performance in this. You just really feel sorry for him, even after what he does. Um, And the girls aren't particularly sympathetic because they just dismiss him and... You know, they just think, oh, you know, he's just this unassuming, silly little man. Um, well, they try to take advantage of well, him. Well, the two girls, there's two girls he picks up, which he invites to a party at his house, and they're hideous. They I'm really are. I'm not saying any I mean, woman I deserves think... that, but, you know, they're just really not very nice people. No, which is maybe what makes it a little bit more sort of like an evolution of Psycho. And, and I'm not saying that she in any way deserves what happens to her either but there's no there's not really that dichotomy between an innocent victim and a malevolent killer it's he's he's the protagonist but you know he's the killer from the beginning but he's so sympathetic and the and the victims aren't particular i mean the first victim yes and that's the one that you see most graphically. But then some of the victims aren't yes. particularly sympathetic, which is a strange They're not. changeover. I mean, it's not surprising, really, it got labelled in with the video nasties. But I think I read something somewhere, and I can't remember where, um, where I think didn't the producers of Don't Go in the House actually attracted the attentions of the BBFC by putting something like video nasty or something on the video cover um which probably I wasn't because they, they did used to just pick things up randomly usually going on a title like mardi gras massacre which is really tame so um an axe as well was another one which we've just talked about i mean axe i think yeah that's definitely got to be really bad so you know the title's not particularly sensational is it so you know that was probably a bit no silly and it's weird it's <laughs> Well, and I feel like this is another thing we've talked about over these last two episodes is 
films that are really impacting that have these sort of nonsensical titles. Like, why is it called Don't Go in the House? I Like, I get it. You shouldn't go in his house. <laughs> but shouldn't the title have something more to do with well, fire? I prefer the like, French title, which is Pyromania, which is brilliant. Which is a great title. And the original title, The Burning, obviously, is just so weird because that ended up another film entirely. So, you know... But it belongs more here, it I think. Does. I mean, I love, as I said, I love the burning, but this is just so much more a, appropriate for but that in title. In a weird parallel universe, if it was called the burning, what would the burning have been called? <laughs> Camp of Fire? I, I don't even know. Camp of Fire. <laughs> that, no, that's terrible. <laughs> Cropsy? It could just be called Cropsy. I think was I think that might have been a working title for the film actually. I think it might have been, but uh, it's a great title and someone should have used it before that. I think yeah, definitely it does deserve more love. Don't go in the house. It does and it's I I think like you said it kind of gets passed over because so many people use that don't in the late 70s early 80s like in a way where you get kind of numbed to okay, what shouldn't I do? <laughs> But really, this is the best of all of those don't films. Oh, definitely. And Don't Go in the Basement deserves a mention, but Don't Go in the House is much no, better. No, it's definitely the best one. Don't Go in the Woods is quite crap. Yeah, that's just unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> so wrapping up our last film, we, we need to end on a high note, definitely. Then we I will. feel quite ashamed of myself <laughs> because I reviewed this film a few years ago and my review of that film was just a stream of venom. I think I didn't even bother <laughs> writing who had directed it or like I just who was in it or anything. I just wrote this and I don't know why because revisiting it I think maybe I was a bit mean. Um there was some humor in my review though. I did sort of pick out some things, but I do feel a bit ashamed to be sat here podcasting about it like 3 or 4 years later after I summarised. So if this film is really as bad as I say it is, why am I reviewing it? Well, if I can save at least one person from investing nearly an hour and a half of their life, they will never get back. Then it will be a job well done. (laughs) Watch at your peril. Well, sometimes bad is good. This is not really one of these movies. It's time you believed in a new kind of horror. Children. Something you wouldn't dare to imagine has happened to the children. Something beyond your worst fears. Jenny. Jenny, darling, is that you? Mama. Something evil is happening, and it's happening inside the children. The children will take you one step beyond horror to sheer terror. Something terrifying has happened to the children. Pray you never meet them. I don't know what was what was in what had got into me that day. I think maybe because 
I just reviewed or I just written something about Bloody Birthday and these two films which is hard to beat. I mean Bloody Birthday's just fucking amazing so I don't know. And I also reviewed The Child, that awful film The Child as well at the same time I was on definitely on a children evil kids sort of go wrong vibe and I just feel so ashamed of myself for writing that. <laughs> And we're also, to be clear, we're talking about Max Kalmano, which is The Children from 1980. Oh, the Children of Ravensback, which, which was the... Which, I can't even handle that name because, and to clarify, so I've been, for the last two years, I've been writing a book about World War II and cult films. So when I hear Ravensback, it makes me think of Ravensbrook, <laughs> which is the name of a concentration <laughs> camp. So, it, like, I can't even call it The Children of Ravensback. <laughs> It's um, Troma have got the rights at the moment. So the lucky, the lucky people who haven't seen this, though, can watch it for free on their YouTube channel. So that's good news if you fancy a laugh. Um, and you should yeah, watch it. Yeah, you should watch it. I take back everything I said. <laughs> I don't know why I was so angry. I just, I don't know. Well, I, no, I get it because I feel like if you watch Bloody Birthday first... And definitely when we do our follow-up Nightmare USA episodes, we will have to talk about Bloody Birthday because and it's Bloody amazing. Bloody Birthday's but... got Elizabeth Hoy in it, and Elizabeth Hoy is not in this film. No. <laughs> and it's so, it's such a, so when I saw The Children, I was at this, and I feel like maybe in past episodes I've mentioned them once or twice, but there's this Philly area film group called Exhumed Films who puts on screenings, and they do these for probably seven or eight years now, they've been doing these 24-hour Halloween horror movie marathons. And I'm pretty sure at their first or second one is where I saw the children. And all their screenings are total surprises. You have no idea what they're going to show. So I hadn't seen it. I didn't know what to expect. And I was just blown away. But I think if I had watched it as a follow-up, to Bloody Birthday or on even... On a terrible bootleg copy. Yeah, and I saw it in a theatre on a 35mm print. So The fact that that I, exists I feel like it's in all 35 millimeter, but, you know... <laughs> Jose Larouse well, films like are it's... lost. It's just criminal, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's it's all about managing your expectations. So if you come to the children with the right attitude, you will be very positively blown away. <laughs> it, so talking of the plot then, it starts off... <laughs> so sorry. it's a chemical plant or a nuclear plant, I'm not quite sure. And there's these two like idiotic sort of maintenance men who are going... And one of them is wearing what appears to be skinny jeans. They look jeans. like the fucking Mario Brothers. They're just walking along <laughs> on this tower. They do. Just, it's like, what the hell? And they're so inept that they somehow, or something happens, and um, I think I zoned out at that point. Um, there's like a leak, a chemical leak. It leaks this toxic sort of yellow mist. And just when that happens, the school bus happens to just be driving into the cloud and then it disappears. So the next thing we get is the sheriff, the local sheriff, um, who's Billy Hart is his name. And he's discovered the school bus, but no kids. 
And so he goes into the town and he goes around all the parents and he tries to find out if the kids have come home. Now, this is the first funny thing about it. And I did admit this in my original review is the fact that they admit that this bus driver was a bit of a strange sort. He was a bit eccentric and their kids have gone missing and the bus is found empty. And yet these parents, they just continue about their business. They don't seem particularly alarmed. Um, the first set of parents he goes to are an obvious lesbian couple, um, Dr. Gould and Miss Button. <laughs> Miss Button is inexplicably <laughs> blind. Dr. Gould is wearing a Gould, sorry, not Gould, is wearing a bikini and is obviously really hates men because she's really hostile to the sheriff. He's just asking if their kids come home, um, Tommy. So um, she goes in to check with her girlfriend and starts sort of like orgasmically caressing her to give her some painkillers um not particularly concerned you know this blind woman who then continues to just play in the piano and then we've got this posh couple who are hilarious they're sat by the pool and the mother's just sat there topless and the dad's lifting weights yeah they're amazing <laughs> <laughs> and the sheriff's like oh have you seen your kid sheriff hart how nice is janet at home isn't she a little young for you, Sheriff? She's only nine. Sure, please. I really haven't the faintest idea. Jack, darling, have you seen Janet lurking around the house? No, sweet. She's always lurking around the house. I don't want to alarm you about your daughter, Miss Shaw. I discovered the school bus out by the cemetery. None of the children were on it. Neither was Fred Mansfield, the driver. Mansfield's a bit senile, if you ask me. He probably took them on an impromptu picnic or something. Did Janet say anything about a picnic this morning? I really haven't the faintest idea. I never rise before 10. Not now, love. Exactly what are you trying to tell us, Sheriff? That Janet is missing, along with all the other children of Raven's back. You don't think they've been kidnapped, do you? I don't know what to think. A kidnapping in Raven's back. Oh, Jack, how exciting. <laughs> it's just, it's just so like, you know, what were they thinking? And so they find out that these kids have actually become, um, well, poor old Dr. Gould, actually. She gets out of her bikini and puts some normal clothes on and um, finds one of the kids in the graveyard. And inexplicably, they've become zombies, which is just, I don't know. But not your normal type. These don't eat people. No. No, they don't eat people. They just microwave <laughs> With them. a hug. <laughs> <laughs> and um, to be fair, the effects are quite good. You get this, like, melting effect where the person just, like, burns and melts. And the acting in these scenes is really hysterical. It's so, so hysterical, screaming. but also the the problem. So when I was when I was making notes for this film, <laughs> I was looking over other people's reviews to see if anyone agreed with me that they really loved it, and I mistakenly read this review mine. that described <laughs> it was not yours, but I mistakenly and I I should have written down where it was from. I don't remember, but somebody wrote this review that was like. I liked the film, but everyone who got cooked by the children looked like they were suddenly turned into eggplant parmesan. <laughs> and 
now I can't not think of that. Well, I put a little captionette with some of the charred bodies with pepperoni pizza, anyone, underneath. Because they look like they've got pieces of pepperoni stuck on their faces. They do. <laughs> it, like, they look like there's some sort of entree. I think that was my main problem, though, from, from the tone of this review, is the fact that they use that as a one-trick pony. It doesn't really get any better than that. That's all that happens. Um and the other thing is, I don't know if it was because it was kids and they didn't want to go too close to the knuckle. Um, they discover they can destroy the zombie children by cutting off their hands. <laughs> <laughs> but I think because they're kids and they don't want to have blood and kids getting their hands severed off, they just have a rubber hand that drops off. There's no blood. It's like, what the hell is that? That's no good. <laughs> It's like kill the kid, kill the kid. They're like cut off their hands. It's just this rubber hand just plops on the floor. Somebody's just thrown it from the back. <laughs> there is a good bit, but it but it also doesn't happen until like probably fifteen no, minutes before it the all movie's happens, over. Like in the last fifteen minutes, and then prior to that, you've just got this time with these really really strange people in it, which I suppose is quite good. And what makes it good, you've got this set of parents who who were like. First of all, they don't react to the fact that their kids have gone missing, but then as it transitions to the fact that they're starting to realise that the kids are zombies and a few of the parents get get microwaved or cooked, as <laughs> that, that review said, is they then take it up 10 notches. So um, it just gets into this hysterical acting. I think I'd put... In the best way. <laughs> I'd written in an attempt to take things off... <laughs> In upper notch in the second half, this is contrasted by blatantly over-the-top hysterical acting. Where is the middle ground? Probably lost in a much better version of this movie, I suspect. (laughs) 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 Oh, dear. And I love this movie, so I feel like I shouldn't be mocking it so much but part of what I love about it. The first time is what made it so good the second time, though, if that makes sense. No, because it's so ridiculous. I mean, it's... Oh, I I don't even... I feel like I'm at a point where we've talked about so many films I genuinely love. Like, to be fair, Don't Go in the House has some ridiculous moments, but I genuinely do love that film, whereas The Children is just over the... T- so for the first half, you have no idea what's going on, and it's almost like a low budget twin peaks where everyone's <laughs> wandering around looking for someone who's missing and nothing makes any sense. And then the second half, everything is so fucking over the top. Well, you've got the Friedmonts who were like Kathy and John Friedmont, who, who were the, their daughter. Jenny has gone missing. So they become yes. the main protagonist. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so they discover that their, their daughter has gone missing with this eccentric bus driver. Um, and, Kathy Fremont, who's a who's a quite a piece of work, really, <laughs> invites the <laughs> sheriff to stay for pot roast. She's like, now I've got a kid. If somebody do. told me that the bus driver had possibly abducted my child, I'd be hysterical. I wouldn't go, oh hey, do you want to? They'll probably turn up. Do you want to stay for dinner? I've made pot roast. <laughs> it's like, what the hell? She's also heavily. But that's the whole movie. Heavily- is no one no. cares that their kids are and gone? She's heavily pro. Talking of not caring about kids, she's heavily pregnant, and in a scene where it's sort of displayed how the, the best, best scene. scene 
how stressed she is. She goes to the liquor cabinet and I think she thinks about having a drink but doesn't have one, brings an ashtray out and sparks up a cigarette. And she's... And then apologizes. <laughs> she's there repping it. Sorry. <laughs> but still, like, has this look of fucking oh, bliss on her face when she cigarette. starts smoking. It's so good. I think my favorite person in it, though, was little Clarky. He was the little boy. He was the only person who could fucking act in it. Um, he gets off in it and I was genuinely upset at Clarkie's demise because we were then left with the Sheriff Billy Hart and the Fremonts who <laughs> get increasingly more hysterical yeah, oh my God. by the end of it. Oh, there's also a great pe- bit when one of uh, the, the boy, the zombie boy who's killed Clarkie's coming down the house, uh, the stairs in the Fremont house and they blast a double barrel shotgun into his chest. <laughs> And it's so and it funny. It's like one of the funniest it's things like I've ever got seen. A sprightly dwarf stunt man. It's like that would never happen. <laughs> the laws of physics. A sprightly dwarf. St- <laughs> a, a sprightly dwarf stunt man to jump off of a trampoline yeah, off the it just stairs. Defies all laws <laughs> like, of physics. It's like why would that even happen? Why would he fly sideways when <laughs> shot into him? Yeah. So I feel like we we need to explain this a little better. So. The camera is facing the stairway, but there's a banister in the middle of the frame. And to the left of the stairs is the hallway. And when he gets shot, he dives (laughs) sideways over the banister into the hallway. And it just makes no sense. And then they they, they realize that hasn't killed him. So they chop off his rubber hand, which is like, come on, you've just done that amazing stunt. And now you're leaving me with this. Um, the makeup is crap as well. Come on, they just put black nail varnish on them. They do it, it and it really—it's like all these kids just have. <laughs> <laughs> like I can't even say I it described... out loud. They basically just have painted I nails. I described them as emo kids. I think in my review, and lazy trick. They are, treaters. and it's like, look, where's the makeup budget? <laughs> I've been down the dollar store. <laughs> Halloween special and bought this black nail varnish. That'll do everyone. They've got tiny nails, so you know. It's like, come on. But it's like it's like they use Sharpie it's markers. Like, <laughs> and I feel like I have to talk about one of my favorite cool. scenes where so there's this teenage daughter who I'm not sure if she's supposed to be a teenager or she's supposed to be in her early twenties, but she's dating one of the cops. And who also is quite young, but she's dating one of the cops and he, he makes it clear to her that he has to work and she doesn't care. So she shows up to the crime scene and tries to make out with him. And he's like, no, I, the children are missing. One of your siblings is missing. I have to do my job. And she's like, yeah, but don't you miss me? And meanwhile, these two guys with shotguns are standing next to him and they keep making jokes about how they want to hit on her. One of the guys... Well, one of those sexist hillbillies is actually, yes, he's in the thing. <laughs> but so as soon as I saw him, I was like, I never noticed he was in this before. But so after after the, the cop drives her off, she starts riding her bike home. And there's this scene where somebody is trying to pass her on in their car and they act like, and she's in the shoulder, so she's all the way to the right of the road. And they act like it's this huge deal, and like they're gonna run her off the road. 
and the passenger in the car is like, well, she's going really slow. Maybe we should just go around her. And it's like, what the fuck? Why is this a scene? Why is this an actual scene There's in the movie? There's also that weird <laughs> 70s pimp guy, the black guy, turns up demanding access to the town because they they close it off. They've got the sexist hillbillies. Yes. Um, Peter Maloney is the guy. He's Bennings in the thing. Um, and his mate, who were like these sort of comic relief characters not that you need comic relief in this film (laughs) but this guy turns up in this car and then he just he wastes all this time winding his window up and down (laughs) while he's speaking you don't even know why he's there it's like why is this guy here it's like oh we just need some more people can we just bring some more people in we need to delay it till the third act when we can finally have someone chop off one of the children's yeah, hands. Yeah, rubber hand, and then we can have that smoking pregnant woman in various states of hysteria. <laughs> and the amazing scene where her husband and the sheriff return home, and they both know what's going oh, on. Oh, I know what you're going to say. Husband, <laughs> her husband won't tell her that, A, your kid is dead, and B all the missing kids are zombies and instead he screams at her to go make them a pot of coffee (laughs) (laughs) and the sheriff kind of looks at him like are you sure about that and he's like well i can't tell her (laughs) it's just like what the fuck i do feel that i found a new love for this film somewhere it's so good in such a bad way in that missing version that i was looking for in my first review I never thought I'd be well, sat podcasting about it one day, telling people to watch it. Tommy? Tommy? Some of the crew who made the children went on to make Friday the 13th. Which is a whole different thing. It's a whole different thing, but the score is also by Harry Madfredini, who pretty much copies his score for Friday the 13th. Like, it's so strange. I didn't notice that. I didn't notice the score, probably because I was laughing so loudly. (laughs) Well, I think I've watched it enough times now where I was like, huh, when I stopped laughing... (laughs) But it's seriously, it's so similar to that score. And I, I feel like if you watch them back to back, you'll notice more comic elements in Friday the 13th <laughs> that are equally unintentional. But really nothing compares to the concluding scenes of the film where there are these fucking <laughs> shots of the bodies of children with no <laughs> hands. And then there are these just rubber hands laid out around them in a way that makes absolutely no sense. It's like if you were trying to leave us with a reminder of how this was scary, you you just failed. <laughs> I think there is one moment, and I won't mention when, but there is a baby with black fingernails as well. So Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Which is amazing. And I feel like this kind of ties it back to our first Nightmare USA episode where we talk about an equally absurd scene with a baby. Oh dear. It's all about the babies. <laughs> Holy shit, 
Man, did you see what's in this motherfucking suitcase? Holy shit! Oh, baby, now don't say maybe you know I love you too. I'm sad to say that this concludes our two-part look at some of the films mentioned in Stephen Thrower's Nightmare USA, but we will definitely return to this theme again in the future. I wanted to mention that over on Diabolique, I've recently finished up an extensive essay series on the films of Andrzej Zwawski, whose work we also discussed a few episodes ago on Daughters of Darkness, so please go check those out. On a similar note, Zwawski scholar and collaborator Daniel Bird has a new piece up on Zwawski's final film, Cosmos, which you can find over at bombmagazine.org. And even though I've mentioned them before, I'd also like to give another shout out to the Projection Booth podcast, who have recently done a series of episodes on films with a loose fairy tale theme. In particular, I've really loved their episodes on Celine and Julie Go Boating and Some Call It Loving, both with Diabolique writer Heather Drain as co-host, as well as a great recent one on the Czech film Valerie and Her Week of Wonders. You can find those over at projection-booth.blogspot.com. And Kat, is there anything you wanted to mention? Yes, the latest issue of Screen UK magazine's about to come out, and in that I've got yet another Hammer retrospective on Curse of the Werewolf, so everyone check that out. I'd also like to give a massive shout out to Diabolique writer James Gracie, who's just published his first short story in a collection, it's a collaborative effort, called Karnaki, The Lost Cases. Um, that's out on Ulthar Press and you can check it out on Amazon. Thank you so much for listening and please let us know what you think over on Facebook. Tune back in two weeks for a special American Gothic themed double feature episode where we're going to look at Roger Corman and Vincent Price's Poe films, The Raven and Mask of the Red Death. Mm-hmm.